knows how to intercede for us, knows our struggles firsthand, and we are comforted by the knowledge that the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. With the groaning of creation, Christians and the Comforter, we enter into tonight's passage, a passage that speaks of these difficulties and encourages believers, you and I, to see the trials and the difficulties and the brokenness of this world See them as being redeemed by God. Romans 8, 28-30 is a passage many of you have already committed to memory. Maybe you have posters on the wall with this passage. Maybe you've written on a note card and you've stuck it in your Bible. But it is a great passage. It's a great one to commit to memory if you have not. Because men and women will always want understanding in the midst of a difficult and trying times. Given these past two years and things we've all witnessed and suffered through, we have had our moments of searching. We have wondered, why is God doing this? Why is he allowing this to happen? What does he mean? Does he mean good when my family members contract COVID? Does he mean good when I lose my job? Does he mean good when I'm betrayed by a friend? Or I lose friends because of the beliefs I hold? Does he mean good when I suffer? As we dig into the passage, we'll try to come to grips with these questions and along the way, dive into the richness of God's blessings through trials. So let us read Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And the Apostle Paul writes this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those who, who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he perished, predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We'll see tonight in this passage three things. We'll see that good comes to those who love God. We'll see that good comes in all things. We'll see good comes with a purpose. Let's open this time and invite God to our midst. Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for the word that you have given to us. We thank you for the message that it speaks to our lives. Uh, in the midst of all our trials and sufferings and the imperfections of the world around us, even in our own imperfections, we know, Lord, that you are accomplishing something. But, Lord, sometimes our hearts cannot follow where our mind is. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us tonight. Allow your, your word to speak to us. Allow us to encourage one another in our small group time. But we ask, Lord, that your spirit would cleave us to the heart so that we might understand what you call us to. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We come to our first point tonight. Good comes for those who love God. Good comes for those who love God. The first thing we should notice in this passage is somewhat something that I must admit that I missed in my first few readings of the passage. I glossed right over the phrase, for we know that those who love that for those who love God. And I simply just kind of kept on reading. And I simplified the phrase in my mind that, well, this applies to those who believe in God. Got it? Great. Okay, let's move on. Let's get to the good stuff. But in doing so, I did great injustice to the passage. I shortchanged the treasure therein. And this is why that sometimes we have to take our time to chew on Scripture, to meditate, to think through every word, to think through all the applications, to think through all the words and turns of phrases and to do it over and over and over again because we'll miss something. 
What I missed was this, that those who love God mark a people who have a special relationship with him. That love is something more than simply a shorthanded way of saying those who love God, those who believe in God. But those who love God are themselves loved by God. This kind of love marks more than just simply a mental ascent and a belief in something. It marks intimacy. It marks an understanding of the roots of the promises of God and what it means to us and that we are grateful as a result and we turn to the God who gave it to us. We turn to him in love. Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 through 6, Moses writes in the Ten Commandments, You shall not bow down to idols to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Right? She's laying out some laws, laying out some scriptures. But, and this is what God says to those who will turn away from the idols, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Likewise, Paul writes in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, of those who love, Paul writes this, they have a special relationship. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, this knowing by God is not merely that God suddenly takes notice of you if you believe in him. It's not as if one moment you didn't love God and he didn't know who you were, didn't know your name, didn't know what your occupation was, didn't know where you came from. And then the moment that you ascended faith in Christ that he suddenly took notice of you and therefore then he started to love you. No. To do so would ignore the fact that God is omniscient and omnipresent. That he knows all things and he's always present with us. Rather, it should be understood that God knows you in a very special a very intimate way. The same way that a man who says he loves his wife, he says he knows his wife. Or the way you use it, that I know my parents. Or maybe to one another, I know my friends. I know you. In an informal setting, we say to one another, I know you, which is kind of a way of saying, I know your motives. I know what you would do next. Or in spite of what you're saying, I know what you really what you really mean. To know a person not simply knows a knowledge of them, but also implies intimacy and a closeness and is used to mark a very special relationship. So for Paul to say, we know that those for those who love God is not merely saying that we have some knowledge about the facts of God or that we kind of agree with the rules Christians follow or that we have observed God's work around us or that we might have a general feeling about the divine presence. No, what Paul is saying is that people who love God have a special, deep, abiding, intimate relationship in the person of God, and as I said before, as a direct response of his initiative to save us. God reached down, provided us salvation. The believer responded, and knowing the depths of the sin that God pulled them out of, that sparks an intimacy with that God. Now let's touch a little bit on what love for God looks like. Love for God is marked by a thirst for God. Love for God is marked by a thirst for God. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? A man stranded in the desert without water for days, will intensely desire, want, obsessed, 
over to finding of an oasis where it can find life-giving water and then survive. This is the picture that the psalmist writes for us. That those who love God, love God because he is the life-sustaining water for us. That we want to drink deeply from his well of knowledge. That we want to know God more. We want to experience him more. We want to feel the way God feels. We want to have a heart after God's heart. It also means that for those who thirst for God, they have a heart that is much like God's. They have the same views of sin and the same views of blessing that God does. Second, love for God is a refuge. Love for God is a refuge. David, often in the Psalms, speaks about a life experience where he is always on the run. He is fleeing from enemies. He was betrayed by his king and was given a death sentence. He was betrayed by his own sons, blessing for power. David was a man who oftentimes felt alone. And Psalm 5 speaks of a man who has an intimate relationship in spite of all of this. David writes, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God. For to you I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. He finds in God, in the morning, a place to rest. Where he waits for God to come to him. Then later in Psalm 61, David writes of how he finds refuge in God. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you. From the very end of his life, where all is gone. Where he feels like he can turn nowhere else. From the end of the earth I call to you. When my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge. A strong tower against, my, against the enemy. Those who love God do not find comfort in distraction. They don't slake their existential thirst and drink. They don't find satisfying resolution to life's problems by looking for good advice from a website or from a magazine article or from a self-help book. Instead, the believer is to find a place of rest in their God because God and God alone is the fulfillment of everything they are seeking. Everything else is simply just a cheap substitute, a flimsy shelter from the storms that beset us. Next, third, a love for God leads to a desire to please God. A love for God that leads to a desire to please God. Jesus says in John 15 that those who love him and the Father will obey the commands of God. John 15 verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Finally, about love and to be honest, not comprehensively. These are a few of the things we thought of, I thought about. A love for God is a love above all other things. A love for God is a love above all other things. The kind of relationship where obedience is born of love demonstrates a commitment to a God, an understanding that God is everything. Such a person exchanges the temporary pastimes of this life, of the things that this world offers, for an eternal treasure. James says, oh, for those who love God and endure trials, and without giving in to those trials, he says that such men have eternal life. James writes in verse chapter 1, verse 12 of his epistle, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who love him. You might take notice that a love for God also, in a, in a way, defines the kind of good that comes to those who love him. You'll see that a love for God includes a desire to obey God. In other words, when we obey God, we know what is good, and we want to do good. So if we love God, therefore, and we obey Him, we kind of, in a sense, come to a different understanding of what good is. It is defined by our love for God. The fall of man, back in Genesis, could be seen as a love for self over the love of God. When Eve took the fruit of the tree, she loved her own judgment over the judgment of God. So, a restoration of the created order requires us to change not only our love for the world towards our love for God, but also an understanding of what that love then means about good. A love for God is not just a feeling, but it's an alignment of the believer's desires with their creator's desires. Now, what if you don't love God? What if a person does not love God? Does it mean that life is full of acts of destruction from God towards them? Are then the sufferings of the world meant for your punishment, for those of you who do not believe? No. What it means is that, you, that if you don't love God, then what trials come in this life can be a source of no goodness. Not because of punishment, but because you are simply different. Trials from God are meant for the believer, not meant for the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, these experiences are simply painful things because they are empty of hope and meaning to those to whom, for them, God does not exist. A propane torch is a tool for soldering copper pipes together, right? You stick them together, you get some metal, you get a propane torch, you melt the metal, and the pipes are attached. The torch, though, is absolutely, it's the right tool for plumbing. It is absolutely the wrong tool for attaching two pieces of wood together. The torch would do what? Set fire to the wood. Because the two materials, the copper and the wood, are so fundamentally different, they react much differently to the means of connection of these two, these two materials. To those who love God, you are fundamentally different. You are the copper in this whole illustration. Now, let's not go too far, right? But those of you who do not believe, you are wood. And so when the propane torch comes to attach you, to give you purpose, to give you meaning, it burns you. Without the believer's sight, without being fundamentally different, you're blind and unable to understand what God is doing. I ask you, do you love God? Do you know his ways? Do you have his heart? Do you love the intimacy that he enters into you, into with you, to a place where you can fulfill and be filled with life's great purpose? Do you love God's blessings, or do you instead you love God's blessings and hope to get from God all the good things that you want, that you want out of this life? As we often have said, it is true, from the pulpit, do we love God, or do we love his stuff? If we love God, it is a love demonstrated by that intimate relationship. That you desire to want to know Him. That even though it may be hurtful, that even though getting close to God means understanding His truth, 
even though understanding that truth is going to say to you that you need to change, do you want that? Do you find joy in wanting to know that getting close to, the, to that fire is going to refine you? This is what it means that good comes to those who love God. That you are fundamentally different. That when trials come, that it changes you. That it was intended for you as a believer to do good for you. Now, as we finish up this point, if we go on to next, we'll see that good comes in all things. And when I say all things, that's simply that's what it's meant. My wife says this. I say what I mean, I mean what I say. And this is what God says. All things are meant for good. Good, bad, or indifferent, all of these things are for our benefit to those who love him. Good thing comes in all things. As the pastor says, for those who love God, then all things work together for good. Now, there are two possible interpretations looking at this passage. Because all things work together for good, who is the causing of the all things? Now, one reading is that all things are simply random events. That there is no cause. It's just the laws of the universe working together. Which is really kind of a nihilistic way of looking at things. That we're left at the mercy of a cold, impersonal universe with no meaning. The wording seems to imply God is not involved here. Now, some of you who have the NIV might be confused about what I'm saying here. Because the NIV renders Romans 8, 28 as this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. While the NIV may not be as literally accurate as the ESC word for word, it does carry a better reading of Paul's intention. And this insight is the proper understanding of Romans 8.28. That God is the one purposely driving all events. This shows the Bible study tactic is simply to check other verses sometimes. When you're confused about a passage, go read other versions of, of Scripture and see other translations and see what they have to say. Another tactic is to know that Romans 8.28 occurs within the larger witness of Scripture. And since all Scripture comes from God, the same God, Old and New Testaments alike, then what he says in one book of the Bible has to be consistent with another part of the Bible. And so we turn to other verses that speak to this. God works in all things, it says in Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel his will. Even though man decides and acts, God is somehow in the midst. Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We have, our, we have our plans, but God has a purpose in spite of what we think are our own choosings. Scripture shows us that God is the cause of all things. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it. Nothing comes unless God has commanded it. So as we study Romans 8.28, the basic principle is this, that God is in control of all the events of our lives. Nothing comes to pass without the Lord's permission. Nothing. But does this mean that the Lord intends evil, intends suffering, intends trials, intends for us to sin, intends for us to suffer at the hands of others' sin? Because rest assured, we can come up with plenty of examples where we don't feel like that. those things should happen, right? An illness befalls a parent or sibling. A friend is grievously injured in an auto accident by a drunk driver, caused by a drunk driver. Your supervisor shows favoritism against you. You fall ill, unable to make an important meeting or interview. 
The world is around us, filled with many other things, accidents, riots, vandalism, theft, disorder. And yet these are all part of what Paul means by all things. Let's turn to scripture for more illumination. A classic example of how all things work together for good is the account of Joseph, who, by the sin of his brothers in the Old Testament, in their jealousy, by their, his brothers' jealousy, they sold Joseph into exile. In his exile, Joseph was sent to prison because of the schemes and lies of Potiphar's wife. And he was left there to rot by the forgetfulness of Pharaoh's cupbearer. While Joseph's trials were not good, there was a greater thing God did in spite of them. As a result of those events, Joseph came to a position of power in Egypt when a famine came. Joseph's brothers unwittingly sought food from Joseph himself, the very brother that they had sent along this course of difficulty. And as Joseph reveals himself to his siblings, who in their horror realized they were in a precarious position, because he had power over them, Joseph says this to them in Exodus 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people, the nation of Israel, should be kept alive as they are today. Even though evil was meant, God was able to work in spite of man's sin and the sins of the brothers to accomplish a greater purpose in preserving the nation of Israel. And of course, later, the Israels became slaves of these same Egyptians who saved them. That was yet another evil. That, however, provided a reason for the nation of Israel to leave Egypt behind and to not make Egypt their home and to make a hard journey to establish a nation for themselves in the Promised Land, led by their God. Even then, the journey was difficult and the people spent decades wandering in the wilderness because of their sin. Did they lack a Thomas guy? Was there no GPS? Did they not know which way was west or east? No. The sojourn in the wilderness was meant by God as an act, both of punishment for their disobedience, but also as a refinement of their character to prepare the nation to take the Holy Land. In all these situations, there were trials. Things that in the Lord's hands later became a means of shaping his chosen people. Another and greatest example of this, of course, is the death of Christ on the cross. Christ's execution is the result of men who were jealous, who were afraid they would lose power, who wanted the acclaim of the people, did not want to see that acclaim go to another person. And the first believers, after the crucifixion, were huddled in their home, hiding when Jesus rose and came to them, bringing to them the power and plan of salvation, to demonstrate to them that God had power over death, to demonstrate to them that there was a path much brighter than they had hoped for. That they had expected. Even when intended as harm by corrupt men, God in his infinite ability and wisdom and in a great act of compassion turned this act of sin into the spark that lit the fire of this sacrifice of Christ. A sacrifice that satisfied and slaked God's thirst for justice. We know these biblical examples. We know them intellectually. Right? These are all not new things to you. But our hearts have difficulties accepting it into our own lives, accepting the fact that they would apply to us as well. 
when real difficulties and real trials and real sinfulness affects us, we have an assumption when we come to Scripture and this particular passage in 828 that the events that we encounter should somehow result in incomes, outcomes, excuse me, and income really, result in outcomes from an earthly perspective. That is, we want our difficulties to turn into a chain of events that lead to worldly good. How many times have we made the assumption that when God closes the door, he's going to open the door somewhere else? That when he closes the door on a school application or a prestigious study program, then something even better will, plot, will come to us someday. Or maybe we feel that we don't get the dream job that we wanted. Then, you know what? There must be a much better job around the corner. Or when a family member goes through really difficult times or suffers illness, then it must mean ultimately there will be healing and God will be glorified. This, however, is something we must overcome. This feeling, this assumption that life has to turn out great when God says that good must come. There are many reasons for trials. So let's go through a few examples and perhaps we can see how God desires us to understand the good that comes from them. Good comes from trials because we respond to suffering in others. Because when we suffer, God may be strengthening us. Because trials teach us that we cannot rely on ourselves. Because trials teach us the world is not what God intended. Because God redeems the effects of sin to accomplish his goals. Because our own sin, when we properly view it and repent of it, teaches us how to hate sin. We respond to suffering in others. When we see others suffer, God may be teaching us compassion. He may be teaching us kindness, sympathy, humility, patience, gentleness towards others. We love others when they suffer. Our hearts stretch. And we grow as we walk alongside others who are suffering. When Matt was up there singing by himself, trying to lead all of us without aid of amplification, right? In a way, God is kind of teaching us to respond to his suffering. In his difficulty, it's you know, not huge suffering, but in that difficulty, right, did we not try to pick it up a little bit more? Do we not try to understand that worship wasn't about the show, but is instead about something else? Did we not feel for him? And Steph? How could I forget Steph? <laughs> I need your home and you see things. Yeah, okay. <laughs> when we suffer, next, when we suffer, God may be strengthening us. 1 Peter 5, 10, Peter writes, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God may be testing our faith, not in the sense of trying to grade us, or to see whether or not we really got faith, but testing is a means to prove out faith under fire. In engineering, we test the things we build in order to demonstrate that they are ready for use, that they are durable and can be depended upon. God tests us not to give us grades, but to ready us for purposes and to ensure we are able to last into eternity. There's a show that my wife turned me on to that we like to watch together. It's called Forged in Fire. It's about how people would come together and make knives, swords, and all other sorts of sharp objects. I kind of like sharp objects. It's kind of cool. It was fascinating, and yet another hobby I could see myself getting into, but don't worry, I'm not going to. 
A part of the process of making a quality blade, as we've learned from the show, is to heat it up so that the metal becomes malleable and workable, and the knife smith can then turn and beat the metal into shape. Then when the basic profile of the knife is formed, the blade is heated again to extreme temperatures and then plunged into a cool liquid in order to toughen up the metal so that the edge will last a long time. That's called tempering. But then he still is not done. The knife smith then has to heat the blade again to red-hot temperatures, and then the blade is allowed to cool slowly over time so that the knife would have some elasticity and not shatter when subjected to sudden forces. So maybe we could then, at that point, then maybe we could sharpen the blade and actually make it useful. The point of all this is a sharp knife only comes through the process of heat, a lot of distress, grinding, and a lot of hard work by the smith. This is what God is doing to us in this life when we are under trial. We are being tempered by fire and honed for God's purposes to prepare us for eternity. We are being forged by God to last a long time. James writes in verse 1-2, verse 2 of chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Next, we know that trials teach us that we cannot rely upon ourselves. Trials teach us that we cannot rely upon ourselves. We are tried beyond our limits. Then and only then that we can learn that God is strong. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9, why God may allow believers to suffer, because he's speaking from his own experience. And he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response is not bitterness. Paul's response is, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Trials also teach us that this world is not what God intended, that this world is not what God intended. And I can't tell you how much during the, during, during the pandemic I felt that, that this is not what God intended for us, that we were meant to worship together in person, that we were meant to go out and go and do things in the world, that we weren't meant to be locked up. Trials also show us that God redeems the effects of sin to accomplish his goals. God redeems the effects of sin to accomplish his goals. Remember, Christ was crucified only through the sin of others. That sin was redeemed to accomplish his goals, to redeem all men. When people sin, God can create opportunities for us to be a part of his purposes in redeeming that sin as well. It provides us opportunity to speak truth into people's lives. Provides opportunity to walk alongside those who are suffering at the hands of others and to preach the gospel to be affected by it. A close relative of mine was discussing how um, a very close relative of theirs was affecting them. That they were hurt by this this other this basically their parent. And um, it was a, a remark came up during the conversation. How can a parent do this to their child? And at that moment, you realize that at that moment, the, the truth of sin 
can be spoken to to that person. A parent can hurt a child because they are sinful, and we know that evil exists in this world. But it was not meant to be that way, right? And so we know that God can redeem sin. Finally, our own sin, our own sin, when we properly view it, teaches us how to hate sin and receive grace. And receive grace. It drives us to our knees in humility before God, knowing that our sin needs to be fixed, that our sin needs to be paid for, and that we can't do anything on our own, and that God does it, and that our gratitude then changes us. That grace that we receive should change us. We are saved by grace alone. Paul writes about the redemption of the Lord in very personal terms. God created opportunities for an apostle, the apostle to live out, demonstrate, and preach the gospel. He writes of himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. He writes about what he was like before he met Christ on Damascus Road. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul concludes with this statement of God's intention and ability to overcome all sin. And he says, the saying is trustworthy and fully of, deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul says, I was this way before. And God saved me. And now I can preach about his glory. And at this point, Paul breaks into a doxology, even though it's only chapter one, of praise and worship that only he can do because of where he came from. And Paul writes, he says in verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is a cry of worship from a man who knows the depths that he came from. And when we sin, yeah, you know what? We should feel guilty. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to us. But we can rejoice in a way that if we repent, we can understand the depth of the riches that we have in Christ. These examples show us how God desires for all of us to understand that good comes from trials. Good comes from all. Good comes in all things. Good comes in all things. Fine, lastly, we swing into our last passage, verse, our last point tonight. We see that good comes with a purpose. Good comes with a purpose. That as believers are called according to his purpose, as it says in Romans 8, 28. At first blush, we may look at this calling of purpose and try to make sense of it, some grand plan of our lives. Some grand plan that old gospel tracts used to say, God has a wonderful plan for you. We extrapolate from these tracts that our lives must, therefore, have some meaning that our lives must have some sort of worldly import, that our lives must somehow be full in this world. For isn't that God's purpose for me to be fulfilled? But that is not what the scripture tonight is saying to us. What we will do is we will come to understand the calling of God's purpose. Verses 29 and 30 explain this purpose as laid out in verse 28. Verse 29 starts with a preposition for. For, writes the apostle, and we ask ourselves at the, these moments in time when these prepositions come up, what is the for, therefore? Really, he's saying is, what is the therefore, therefore? But I'm ripping it off. 
This is a marker to demonstrate that what follows is, a re is the reason for the question or the statement or a back and forth thing that came before. So the purpose of God is for this, 28-29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed formed in the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what we call the chain of salvation by theologians and, and preachers. Because it begins from the beginning of salvation to the very end. Salvation begins not at the moment you, you profess Christ, but comes far before that. According to Paul, salvation begins with foreknowledge by God. Then it proceeds along the way when God predestines before you were created for you to be saved. And then it proceeds from there that God calls you where you hear the gospel. And then from the calling you are justified. That is declared righteous. And then from that justification, ultimately you will enter into heaven. You will be glorified. Now, I could probably go on another couple hours talking about this. But I'm not going to, thankfully. It's your great relief. I will leave that to Alan and Chris. People who are professionals rather than hobbyists. It's really a big journey though, right? But the point we want to get from this is that Paul is talking about the gospel. The full width of the gospel. Everything that is involved. God's great purpose for believers, those who love him, then is this. Gospel. The gospel purpose. Our great mission in life is not to accumulate wealth. It's not to live comfortably. It's not to live moral lives. It's not to help people. It's not even to be defined by our way, the way we serve good causes. No, our great mission, our purpose is to be saved, which is to say our great purpose is to enter into fellowship rightly with God. That is our purpose. Therefore, everything in life, our purpose, must be defined by the believer's transformation by the gospel. Your salvation should say everything about everything. Your salvation should apply to all parts of your life. It fundamentally changes us. So when we feel misled by God because our trouble-filled lives don't seem to be very good, or at least for our understanding of what good is, I have to say that our understanding of what good is is hazy at best and perhaps distorted. Our understanding of ultimate good is to be in love with God and to be in fellowship with Him. As a child that does not understand their parents' heart when a broken toy is taken from them. So we kind of misunderstand those trials and the events of our lives that we don't like when God takes away those things that would harm us. It's a difficult thing to accept. Again, intellectually, really easy. But it's our hearts that's really wanting to buy into that. That's hard. And so how would Romans 8, 28, 29 through 30 look for us in our lives? When we do not get a job that we desire, we do not hope for a better job, but we ask the question, for what good gospel purpose? Did, why, why did God not give me this job? I've applied to companies that I really wanted to work for. Companies with high standards, Seemingly interesting work, great benefits, free lunch, dogs at work, the whole thing, and a certain wow factor. I got pretty far in the process a few times with these companies, and ultimately been turned down. This happened more than once. However, I have come to realize, in my disappointment, 
that had I gotten the job, my heart would have been affected by pride. I may have made more of my work than I ought to have. I may have made more of my work than my relationship with God. I likely would have been sucked into idolizing money and benefits, getting a dog just for the sake of being able to bring the dog to work. Maybe the corporate culture itself would require compromises to my principles. In short, God knew better than I did. What if we don't have a significant other? What if we want a significant other? We know that God himself says that it is not good for man to live alone. So why is God withholding this blessed thing? And I appreciate the words of encouragement from many others who struggle in this area. For they share how God is teaching them that the gospel-centered blessing of singleness is something that they are enjoying. To rely upon God alone. To have the freedom to serve others in many different ways that an attached person cannot. To learn of their own hearts. To have them desire God more than people. What about being the victim of a crime or a wrongdoing by others? You learn of how sin corrupts this world and leads each one of us to yearn for something better. For something that's for a world where sin no longer exists. Where you don't have to lock your doors for safety. Where there is no more racial hatred. Where you're never suspicious of your co-workers. Where you no longer, where drugs no longer strip people of their pride and humanity. We also learn tough lessons when we are sinned against. How to forgive people. And how to forgive those who wrong you. Let me tell you how difficult it is to pray for the people who have stolen my catalytic converter. Or have spray painted my house. These are some ways we might be able to see how God does indeed work through difficult things for our good, for things that are called, for people who are called to gospel purposes. I want to share just a, a little bit. Uh, my, my family, um, I have a daughter at home. I guess that really means there's only one daughter I'm talking about, Teresa. And love her to death. Um, um, but she's suffering. Right now, many I've shared this with some of you. She's going through migraines um, since about November. She's probably missed about half of school days, literally at home, um, unable to really leave bed. Um, and it's hard. It's hard for me to communicate to you um, the feelings of what a parent goes through when they see their child laid low. And there's nothing that you can do. Literally, nothing you can do. You are at the mercy of. And it is hard for me to know that God is doing a good work in this. It is a hard work for me to come to understand he is loving us in the best way possible. I have to pray for a greater trust in him through these difficult times. I have to see that God is growing the faith of my family that we don't rely on doctors or drugs. Or just a, a good day at school. I'm learning that my heart is not as faithful as I once thought. And that the lessons I must learn are patience towards God. I am learning that I have more of a desire to control my situation than I had ever thought before. I am learning that I wish for my family more earthly good than heavenly treasure. I am in this difficulty understanding that I lack the patience necessary that God asks me. We're not through the woods. There is really nothing that we can understand and 
to see how, how we don't know what's going to happen. And I have to accept the possibility that we may never see a resolution. But it is through this that God is teaching me what it means to know that this world is not where we ought to be. That this world is not our end. And in that hope, we have hope. And in that, we have hope. Tonight, we have seen how in Romans 8, 20-30, we show us three things. Good comes for those who love God. Good comes in all things. Good comes with a purpose. That those who love God are those who desire to seek after Him and have a close and intimate relationship. A relationship that is able to trust a God that is disciplining or putting you through the fires of trial. Good comes in all things. The easy, the easy stuff and the hard stuff. And then finally, good comes with a purpose. Gospel purposes. It's not easy to orient our way um, into viewing the world this way. But it is, and it is hard work. But it is through this hard work God is doing something for us. Something that we may not see until the very end. And I want to end with this. It's a small poem. Again, some of you probably have bookmarks inside your Bibles. Maybe a poster on your wall. Actually, to be honest, it's the first time I've heard of it. So, you know, to me it's new, to you maybe old. But it's about a weaver. It's about a weaver. God is the weaver. And our lives are a weaving. And the poem starts out where basically it's saying God is doing some work. And he sees the upper side of the tapestry, but we only see the bottom side where all the threads hang out. The backside, the negative image, we're not sure what's going on. And the poet, we're not sure who it is, says this. Not till the loom is silent not, and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares, nothing but this truth in him. He gives the very best to those who lead the choice to him. Let's close this time in prayer. Father, we thank you just for this evening. And we ask, Father, that as we go through trials and sufferings, you continue to show and teach us what you are doing. Give us, Lord, moments of hope. Um, give us encouragement. Give us an ability to be able to walk these difficult paths. And we ask, Father, tonight as we go into our small groups that you would help us to encourage one another as well. So we thank you and we praise the name of Jesus. Amen.